there is a natural tendency to interpret Scripture based on our experiences rather than interpreting our experiences based on Scripture. Let me say that again. There is a natural tendency to interpret Scripture based on our experiences rather than interpreting our experiences based on Scripture. When we read the Bible, we readily pull in our personal experiences to help us understand. We read God so loved the world, and we think about our experiences with love and define God's love by our experience of love. We read about all the activities of the church and the scriptures, and we pull in our experiences of the church, both good and bad. And we read our own experiences, personality characteristics, and personal passions into those scriptures. The Latin term for this is eisegesis, reading into the text. I first heard that word, I thought it had to do with Jesus. It's not even spelled that way. It's E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S, eisegesis, reading into the text. We contrast this with exegesis, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, reading out of the text, where we read what the text says in its original meaning to its original hearers and apply it to our life. Expository preaching, then, as we do here at Westminster, says the point of the sermon is the point of the passage. The point of the passage becomes the point of the sermon. There's one correct interpretation, and then we apply it into lots of situations. This is different than topical preaching found in a vast number of churches that picks a topic and then talks about that topic, sometimes pulling in a scripture verse here or there, perhaps a scripture story to support the point. Topical preaching is rooted in eisegesis, reading the topic into the text. Expository preaching is rooted in exegesis, reading truth out of the text. As we go through the book of Acts, there are some passages that are harder to do exegesis because we have so much experience readily connected to it. But other passages are so different, so foreign to our own experience that it's perhaps easier to understand the original meaning. And so we come to chapter six and an account that I personally misunderstood for years and years. It's an account that I did not truly understand, actually, until I came here to Westminster eight years ago. New experiences challenged my assumptions from my old experiences, and I was able to go back to the text and see some things I had never seen before, that we might indeed see what the text says first and foremost before we read the word. Let's go before the author in prayer. Our great God, you have certainly made us in your image and have given us our experiences and our personal characteristics and the passions, the callings, the enthusiasms. And yet you were also the God of revelation. And in our fallen condition, we sometimes and frequently elevate ourselves above you and our own revelations above your own. So we pray that you would not completely remove us from ourselves, but that you would raise yourself up, that we would understand your revelation first, and then see how that is applied 
into our lives individually, but also our lives together. To that end, we pray then for your spirit to come, for your spirit to bear witness to the reading and the preaching of your word so that the preacher in the pulpit who is not worthy, but by your grace would be made able through Jesus Christ. Amen. Acts 6, verses 1 through 7 is hard to interpret in its original meaning because it resonates so readily to so many of our personal experiences. Remember that we are talking about the New Testament church of Jesus Christ within its first several months of existence. Everything is new, and yet certain realities of life are old. The believers are mostly in and around Jerusalem, but becoming more and more ethnically and economically diverse by the day. There are more believers than can be counted, and God is clearing the way for the continual expanding reach of the gospel. So this is not Westminster and Butler in 2017, but will speak volumes to us if we first see the diverse church and people of the Middle East in 30 AD. Listen then to God's word. In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Our passage begins that in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. That's the situation. That word that's translated complained means murmurings. Murmuring or grumblings, not a formal complaint, but the murmuring that people often do. There can be a legitimate concern expressed in illegitimate ways, that seems to be the case here, but the leaders of the church seek the Redeemer in order to redeem the murmurings. It is a good situation. The number of disciples is increasing, and that means increasing needs. Every church says they would love to be in such a situation, right? And yet there are churches that respond to increasing attendance by complaining that someone is sitting in their seat or that too many things are on the church calendar or that the increasing needs means changing the way things are done and who likes change. And even in a good situation of growing numbers, there is still sinful murmuring. The mark of a healthy church is not increasing numbers. The mark of a healthy church is biblical church leadership that addresses increasing needs, decreasing needs, and changing needs. 
In Acts chapter 6, the need is to expand the mercy ministry in terms of the daily distribution of food. And the word in the NIV that's translated distribution is the Greek word diakonia, where we get our word deacons. Deacon means service or ministry. There was a daily service, a daily ministration in the King James, a daily deaconing of food to the widows. The quickly increasing numbers of the early church also reveal the growing diversity of the church. Within Jerusalem and its surrounding areas, there were many languages that were spoken. Certainly we know that from Pentecost, where people were amazed to hear the apostles speak in their own native language. The two most prominent languages, though, were Aramaic, a form of Hebrew, and Greek, with Greek being the common language spoken in the community. And in the church community, there was a contingent of Hebrew-speaking Jews that had one cultural background, and Greek-speaking Jews that had a different cultural background. And these different cultural backgrounds meant there was also two divisions among them. But diversity doesn't have to mean division. Notice that the disciples did not split over this, right? The first apostolic church of Jerusalem on one corner, the second apostolic church of Jerusalem down the street. Nor did they simply tell the complainers to stop complaining. Nor did they take a vote about who was right and who was wrong. The complainers didn't just try to start their own church and do it better than the others. They didn't form a committee to study it to death. Verse 2 tells us, The twelve gathered the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now notice that the twelve did not say the ministry of the word of God is more important than the mercy ministry. That's not what they said. The mercy ministry and the word of God ministry are both important. The various ministries that happen in and through the church are all important. And in a healthy church, we do not pit one ministry against the other. But leaders lead the ministries together. So there's people who might say, why do we send so much money to missionaries in other countries when there's so much need right here? The answer, we do not pit one ministry against the other. They are all important. We are called to support missions here and throughout the world. We are called to be witnesses here, there, and everywhere. Why do we have mission-focused Sundays throughout the year and make the Sunday school classes meet together? Don't we think discipleship is important? The answer, we do not pit one ministry against the other. Hearing from missionaries is part of our discipleship. Part of our discipleship is to be equipped to go and do missions, evangelism, and kingdom building. When the worship service runs long because of that long-winded preacher, it cuts into the fellowship time. Don't we think fellowship is important? Answer, we do not pit one ministry against the other. Worship and fellowship and discipleship are all important, and we seek to do all three on any given Lord's Day morning as part of our threefold desire for reaching people, equipping believers, and sending disciples. Unbiblical leadership seeks to gain a leadership position in order to be empowered to do what they want to do. Biblical church leadership puts pet projects aside and discerns together what the Lord is calling us to do together. The 12 apostles did not pit ministries against the other. 
they did not advance pet ministries. And they did not think that they were called to do it all. And so we read in verse 3 and 4. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. They turned the responsibility over and didn't try to take it back. They didn't try to micromanage, thanks be to God. As it turns out, there are different callings that correspond to different gifts, that correspond to different needs. The offices in the church are the elders and the deacons. The elders who make up the session are those who give their attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The deacons who make up the board of deacons or diaconates are those who give their attention to the mercy ministry and stewarding of the church's resources. Now, interestingly, the word translated ministry of the word is again the word diaconia. The elders are deaconing the word. And back in verse 2, where we read about the need to wait on tables, is also the word diaconia. One group is needed to deacon the tables as part of the daily deaconing of food, and another group is needed to deacon the word. And in all of this, there is never to be one person doing it all, never one person in charge, but a plurality who lead together. This was the case in the Old Testament as well. Earlier in the service, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 13, in which Nehemiah made some reforms because things that had been neglected, he needed to reform. Instead of one person being in charge of the storerooms, he restored the Levite priests to their duties. Several people are especially noted as being considered trustworthy, and they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. A similar situation is in Numbers chapter 11, while the Israelites are in the wilderness. The Lord has Moses assemble 70 men and says, I will take the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. And they will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. And here in our passage, there is not a new revelation from the Lord about what to do with the situation. They simply apply the Old Testament revelation to their current situation. And they choose seven men who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And here is where I was always confused by this passage and misunderstood it for so long. At my home church growing up, the deacons were charged with two very important tasks, ushering and polishing the brass. I kid you not, that is what it meant to be a deacon. There was a group of people, then they took turns ushering on Sunday mornings, and three times a year they polished the brass. And that's what it meant to be a deacon. I also served another church that what it meant to be a deacon is that twice a year they got together and made soup and brought it to several shut-ins in the community. And it always seemed strange to me that you had to be ordained in order to usher, polish brass, and serve soup. But I took that experience and read it back into Acts chapter 6 and thought, sure enough, seven men ordained in order to bring food to widows. Well, the change came as I was doing devotions using the book of church order and preparing to come into the PCA. I am probably the only person in human history that has used the book of church order as a devotional guide. But I encourage you to do it. I took the Bible on one side and the book of church order on the other side in order to understand the biblical truth 
that was being applied to specific situations in the church, in the book Church Order. And I started to read about the duties of deacons described in the book of Church Order. And the BCO described the deacons very differently than anything I'd ever experienced in my church life. Now, if you have never been a part of the mainline church, you may not understand this, but those who have will certainly recall how this works. The pattern in the mainline church is this. If you're a member long enough, you will eventually be asked to serve as a deacon, given certain important tasks like ushering, polishing brass, and making soup, and going to meetings. If you don't mess that up, and I'm not sure how you could, then you get promoted eventually to elder. And as an elder, you go to more meetings, serving on various committees who talk lots and do little, and go to board meetings where you hear reports about all the talking and little doing of the other committees. If you don't mess that up, then you finally get promoted to trustee. And the trustees have charge over the property and the budget. The trustees are the group that do the major decision-making and doing in the church. Once you become a trustee, you never want to go back and serve as an elder or deacon again. And then it hit me. The trustees are actually deacons. The deacons are actually trustees. And the deacon trustees don't do all the work. They oversee that the work is done. The deacon trustees don't give all the money. They are stewards for the tithes and offerings that are given by the whole church. And I looked again at Acts chapter 6 and realized for the first time that the seven did not do all of the daily distribution of the food by themselves. They led the church in doing the daily distribution of food. Couldn't believe I'd never noticed that before. There's no way that seven guys could have done the daily distribution of food by themselves. But seven men, full of the spirit and wisdom, could be trusted with the stewarding of the church's resources and to make sure that everyone was served correctly. A huge task. And so verse 5 begins, this proposal pleased the whole group. Well, yeah. (laughs) Back in verse 2, where we read that the 12 said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word, the phrase that's translated in the NIV, it would not be right, more literally means, it is not pleasing. It is not pleasing to neglect the ministry of the word. And that same word is at the beginning of verse 5, that the proposal to turn over the ministry of stewardship and mercy pleased the whole group. It was not pleasing to neglect the ministry of the word. It was pleasing to have a group of wise men lead the stewarding of the church's resources in such a way that both important ministries can flourish. The best thing that elders can do is turn over the responsibility to the deacons and not micromanage them. The deacons know what they're doing. I could tell you from experience here at Westminster that our deacons know what they're doing. I have regularly been humbled by the incredible wisdom and capability of the deacons here at Westminster. The early church chose Stephen, the first deacon and the first martyr whose account follows in the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. We'll see him next week. And they also chose Philip, 
who we will look at in two weeks in chapter 8. In fact, notice that the account of Acts is now going to follow the ministry, not of the apostles, but the ministry of the deacons over the next couple of chapters. We don't read anything else in the Bible about the other five men who were chosen, but not because they didn't do anything. Remember that Luke is having to take certain key moments and follow those paths for purpose. Uh, certain reasons. Luke doesn't give every account of everything the apostles did and doesn't tell us everything that the deacons did. But the ministry of these deacons was hugely important, so much so that it became an ordained office. In verse 6, we read, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Thank God for the men known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Thanks be to God for the ministry of word and prayer, and thanks be to God for the ministry of mercy and stewarding. And so, finally, notice the three results of this shared deaconing leadership in the church. First, the word of God spread. The word of God spread. Deaconing the food and deaconing the word resulted in the spread of the word of God in word and deed. And then second, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Not just the number of believers or converts or people looking for a handout, but disciples who were receiving and providing ministry. Disciples who then became involved under deacon leadership in giving their resources and providing mercy to others. Disciples who were under apostolic leadership, ministering the word in their jobs, relationships, and community. And then third, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Priests who became believers, obedient to the faith, became unemployed as a result of their new faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, they were involved in the sacrifices at the temple. And those sacrifices were now unnecessary because the sacrifices had been fulfilled through the sacrifice of Christ our great and final high priest. If you're a priest and you come to Christ, you don't have a job anymore. Interestingly, as we saw in Nehemiah, the priests were to lead not only the sacrifices, but also in the ministry of resources to the widows and orphans of the Old Testament community. And so Old Testament priests would make great New Testament deacons. The New Testament church of Jesus Christ has to ordain leaders, not to do everything, but to lead the church to minister the gospel in word and deed. The whole church brings tithes and offerings, and the deacons lead in the wise stewardship of what has been given to the glory of God, the edification of the church, and the service to the community and world. The whole church serves, and really that's what the word deacon means. There's deacon leadership, but we are all called to serve. When Jesus spoke of greatness, he said this, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And so Jesus also said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. 
Jesus himself, who was the greatest of all, came to serve. And so it is that he would call us to serve as well. And so may we all do deaconing, serving, as we're called to do under deacon leadership. That the deaconing of the word led by the elders, the deaconing of tables led by the deacons, and the deaconing of all glorify God and cause the word of God to spread and the kingdom of Christ to flourish. Some of that serving we do individually and some of that serving we do together where no one gets their way except for Jesus Christ. And so may the truth of Jesus Christ set us free. Amen.